Good morning. We'll be starting in Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. This is the very word of God. This morning, I get the privilege of introducing our next sermon series. We are about to embark on a one-year exposition of the book of Romans. It's the prayer of the elders that as we go through this letter to the Romans, that we begin to understand that we have a real hope for the righteousness of God. And that will be the overarching theme that, that we preach as we go through the book of Romans. And today it's my goal for us to look at the background of the letter, to explain some of the contextual presentations that are made, that I'll give an outline of the entire book of Romans and point out some major theological themes that, that Paul introduces through the letter. So you got a lot of a lot of ground to cover in the next 33 minutes. So uh, here we go, the entire book of Romans in 33 minutes. Um, so uh, as I start that, um, just up front, I'm not gonna just dive deep into any one particular section. I am going to speak through the passage that was just on the screen that Colby read for us. Um, some would say that Today's message is not an expository message because of that, and I wanna make a quick argument against it, um, cut some of my time that I could be preaching the whole book, uh, because I wanna point out the fact that um, we, we do believe strongly in expository preaching at our church. Like, this is uh, a foundational thing for us, and sometimes we get questioned about why we do short series like the, 
the basics that we just went through. Like that's not expository. You're not preaching through the Bible. And um, I, I wanna explain that expository preaching, the goal of that is to expose what's in the text, what God wants us to learn from a particular text. Um, oftentimes that's done chronologically and we're going to do that over the course of the next year through this entire letter. But that just chronological teaching through the Bible is not expository preaching. You can preach in an order through a book of the Bible and it not be expository. It could still be themed topical preaching. And so um, I, I just wanna clarify that a little bit and tell you that today's message hopefully is expository because when we come to scripture, we need to be able to see and understand the context. We need to understand that well in order to be able to interpret what's being said in any particular verse. And so sometimes you have to zoom in really, really close, dig and mine what God is saying through one or two verses in exposition. But sometimes you gotta zoom out and you've gotta look at a really big picture of what's going on in a particular letter um, or you miss it when you try to go verse by verse through the scripture. And so part of today is us zooming out and looking at what was Paul's purpose for writing this book to the uh, believers in Rome. Um, so that, with that said, um, uh, Paul, Paul's gonna address some like major, um, major important theological doctrines of the faith. We're gonna look at some of the hard things of the Christian faith. We're gonna look at the depravity of man, justification by faith alone. We're gonna be talking about this overarching thing of righteousness of God and what it means in the text. Uh, predestination, uh, all of these things that Paul addresses in the book of, uh, or the letter to Rome. Um, but the, the issue here is Paul is far too good a contextualizer of the gospel for this letter to, to be purely about theological themes or about particular doctrines that we can glean from this text. And the needs in Rome were like far too practical for it to be just about theological themes and doctrines in the text. And I want us to be able to see that very, very clearly before we walk out of here today, that, that Paul had two really main purposes um, in writing this letter, and, and we're gonna get to those. Before we, before we do that, I'm gonna talk about the background of what was happening when the letter was written. So, uh, it starts off, Paul self-identifies as the author. He says that it's being, the letter's being written to the believers at Rome. That is not widely debated at all within church history. Um, and so we'll just stand with that being, being the fact. Um, we, we don't know who the first believers were in Rome. They're not listed by name like they are in some of the letters. The leadership of the church there is not listed by name in the beginning like it is in some of the letters um, we, we, we don't know who these founding believers of the church were in Rome. What we do know is that there were Jews from Rome at the day of Pentecost. And that it's, it, it's very likely that those, became, those believers from the day of Pentecost went back to Rome and were the initial founding, uh, the initial founders of the church there. Um, another thing that we know is that uh, by the, the first century, that there were like somewhere between 40 and 60,000 Jewish residents in the city of Rome, a lot in, in, in Rome. Uh, we also know that in AD 49, 
Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. Uh, it, it really, we, we, we know about like Nero kicking the Christians out, driving them out by force and persecution, but uh, oftentimes it's missed in history that, that the Jews were expelled shortly before that. And um, there, there's some interesting writings on that. Uh, I'll, I'll read one here. Um, Nero, uh, Claudius made them leave um, because he was trying to maintain civil order, and there's uh, extra biblical writings that say this. He, he made the Jews leave since they were continually making disturbances fomented by Christus. Uh, like the, the Jews were kicked out because there were arguments going on between the Jews and these new people called Christians, those that were following Christus. And, and so to, to stop that, rather than kick the Christians out, they kicked the Jews out of Rome. And so this is a, something that happened shortly before this letter that, that Paul is writing. Um, we also know that, that by the time of this letter, that some of those Jews that had been forced out earlier had now made their way back in to Rome. And we see evidence of that even in our text in uh, Romans. Um, we, we see it in Acts because Paul meets this uh, couple, Aquila and Priscilla, uh, and that's in Acts chapter 18, verse two. Um, he meets them in Corinth. And now we see Paul addressing them in Romans chapter 16, as he's wrapping up the letter, he's writing to them. And so we know that some of those Jews that had been forced, Jewish Christians um, that had been forced out of Rome have even traveled back. So these are some, some background things. Um, we, we know that there were conflicts happening, not only between the Jews and the new Christians, but also the new Christians that were formerly Jewish uh, that were having conflict with the Gentiles that were becoming Christians. Um, so there were these cultural and racial differences that, that stood between the Jews and the Gentiles that had converted to Christianity. There were those Jews that by birthright had seen the evidence of Jesus being the Messiah, had come to faith and out of their, their beginning to understand this new faith and, and still following Jewish law um, had major, major differences with these Gentiles that were coming to faith. And uh, uh, it's assumed that the only reason that those Gentiles were coming to faith was because some of the, the new Jewish believers um, were preaching the gospel to them as well. So there, you got these two groups, the Jews and then these polytheistic Gentiles, a lot of which were Roman citizens um, that were kind of merged together into to one group, the, the church. And the, the, this letter comes from the conflict that's happening in these groups of people. Um, them trying to live together or probably more likely not trying to live together in community. Okay, so that, that's a little bit of background of what's going on. Uh, the next thing we need to understand is some of the, the context, some of the uh, contextualization that Paul uses. Now, Paul does this in every single letter that he writes in the New Testament. To each of the churches, if you look at it, there are hidden gems of contextualization that sometimes we miss because of our English translation, sometimes because we don't understand the history of what's going on there or the geography of what was going on in that particular city. But I took a seminary class 
um, on New Testament backgrounds. And that class was one of the most eye-opening things to interpretation of scripture for me. Like every time I come to uh, a letter that I'm gonna study through on my own or, or for like today's sermon, I go back to the notes that I took in that class because there's so much that the author was saying specifically to those people that are so relevant. And I'm gonna kind of pull some of that out for us today. So one of those things that is so prevalent in, it's actually not just prevalent, it's the entire structure of which Paul writes this letter. And that is uh, the idea of court terminology, court language that he uses throughout the letter to the Romans. In fact, the entire letter is written in such fashion as someone who were trying to make a court case before a judge. Um, and, you know, it's really interesting because like when we think about where the church was located in Rome, um, that, that would make sense because uh, they're in Rome. They're in the city of the high court. See, the, the way that civilization was structured in the first century under Roman rule was the court system was a predominant part of their ruling of their territory. You know, in the United States, we have uh, a three section government, right? We have a judicial branch. Um, all, that government is based off of the way that the Romans governed. And we, we see that lived out in the first century in that every single city was appointed a judge. Okay, you guys know this, there was Pontius Pilate, right? That, that judged Jesus himself. So a locally appointed judge. And then there was actually an argument that happened at Jesus's death where they sent him back and forth between the judges because the regional judge actually happened to be there as well. And they got into an argument about, no, this is your case. No, this is your case. And, and tried to pawn that off. That, that's another evidence of this structure that the Romans had. So the local, regional, and, and then up the, the court system until the Supreme Court or Caesar's court in Rome where this letter is written. And this is important because Paul's gonna write this entire court case against both the Jews and the Gentiles in the letter of Rome. Um, and an important side note to this is that the court system wasn't just like if you had a problem, you went to court, but um, it was the primary source of entertainment in the first century. A lot of us are familiar with... Uh, the Colosseum, we know about the gladiators and all of that. Some of us even know about Circus Maximus. One of the largest entertainment structures ever built was there in Rome um, where they did the chariot races. Some of you guys seen, seen some, some movies about that. But, um, but the primary, the day-to-day -day form of entertainment in the first century was to go to court and watch court cases. Judge Judy had nothing on this, like, like we're, here we are 2000 years later, still like modeling entertainment off of the first century. Um, so what that would look like is uh, you would show up at court to watch, um, watch the, uh, the show go on. Um, and rather than having just like an attorney, someone that like studied specifically just to um, make a case with the law, you had these orators 
And their job was to stand up, not just talk about the law that was broken or the case that was being brought about against this person, but really to talk about what would get you off in a court case. And most often in the first century, it was either who you could pay off or who you knew. Sometimes that was a birthright. Oftentimes it was who you were in the, in the know with. And so there were these people that would actually pay to or, or be paid to be followers of one another or to, so that they would have a social network that would gain them status in society. And when cases were brought against them, that they would have the right to get off based on that status of being known. It's gonna become really important as Paul develops the case against the Jews and the Gentiles because um, it's who we know that, that declares our innocence. So um, with the court language, Paul uses this uh, to show God's impartial, just judicial administration. We're gonna see that terminology come up. Um, and he does this against all peoples. We see that in language like all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, he is going to make a case that there's no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. You guys, does that sound vaguely familiar as you think about what we've read in Romans, uh, as you've learned the Romans road maybe? Um, but the fact that all people deserve condemnation, right? You, get, you guys, somebody nod their head that you're with me, right? Like some of this sounds vaguely familiar to you, right? Um, so that, that term is referring to legal wrath. Condemnation is legal wrath um, when you break down what's in that in the, the Greek behind it. So um, he, he establishes that through the gospel that all believers are justified, they're reconciled. This is court terminology. Um, uh, and eventually he gets around to the fact that, that the fact that there's no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile in the way that we are found not guilty, that this should provoke us, um, that that lack of distinction should provoke us into acceptance of one another. This is where the letter's going. So, uh, theological themes. Right standing with God, um, reconciliation to God, if you wanna say it that way, uh, that is one of the major theological themes that we're gonna be looking at. And um, Paul, Paul uses the word righteous in the text seven times. That's not a lot when you think about like 16 chapters, but quite a bit, right? The word righteous seven times. Um, but he uses the word righteousness 33 times. And then he uses the verb form to be righteous 15 times throughout 16 chapters. That's a lot of righteous, righteousness, to be righteous in 16 chapters. Major theological theme. It's one of the central doctrines of Romans. We're gonna, we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about that one. So I'm, I'm gonna kind of breeze over it other than the fact that when Paul talks about righteousness, he's referring to right standing with God, okay? You, you've been found not guilty, so there's now a right standing. And we'll get into that way in detail and what that, that terminology means in different places throughout the next year. Then we have reconciliation of man. 
not reconciliation of you with God. Not, that's not what I'm talking about, but reconciliation of man one to another. And this is spoken of not in the first four chapters directly, but so you can knock those out, but in the last 12 chapters um, really hits really, really hard on. But, but Paul talks about this um, very directly in some ways and very indirectly in some ways that we miss. We can just gloss right over it if we're not careful. Um, he, he does talk about like specific instructions that he gives in us living with one another, but he, he uses inclusive terminology specifically in pronouns throughout the entire letter. And I'm, I'm gonna spend a, a good amount of time pointing some of this out so that we get the breadth of it as we move into our series. But uh, we're gonna start with the word all, okay? Um, Paul uses the word all throughout the letter 26 times. I'm gonna read some of the verses and just kind of point them out. So obedience of faith among all nations, all nations, uh, chapter one, verse five. Um, God, the power of God for salvation to all believing ones, 116. Are, you, they, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jew and Greeks are all under sin, 3.9. Righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, 3.22. All that we... Um, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, 422. Um, 10:12. there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same word is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, 1511, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all people praise the Lord. So that's a short list of those, of those uh, 23. Um, then he uses the term our Lord throughout the text. I'm gonna give you a few examples of that. So um, one four, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, 424, him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 6.23, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Uh, 7.25, thanks be to Jesus Christ, our Lord. So um, with one accord, you may with one voice glorify God, the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these themes of all and our are incredibly, incredibly important. I'm gonna point those out in the verses that we read uh, this morning here shortly. But before we get to that, I'm gonna run through the outline of Romans so that we can pick up on these themes and see them dispersed throughout the chapters. So chapters one through three, chapter one opens with a greeting. In verse 116, it says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. Right off the bat, he's throwing a hint to what this letter is going to be about. Salvation to all who believe, Jew and Greek. From, from the very beginning, 
he acknowledges this distinction that shouldn't be made, but is being made in the church. And then uh, immediately after that, in verse 118, he begins the legal condemnation of all peoples. And he's gonna alternate um, up through the middle of chapter three between Jew and Gentile, just back and forth, um, showing where Jew, you're condemned. Gentile, you're condemned. Jew, you're condemned. You are without defense. Jew, you have the law. You know the law. Because of the law, you are condemned. And then he, he goes to the Gentiles and he's like, he goes, wait a second, you guys aren't off scot-free either. Like from the beginning of time, like I have revealed myself to all people through creation. Gentile, you are without, uh, you, you're with, you, you are condemned. You know, you're without excuse. Then in chapter 20, uh, verse 23 or 21 of chapter three, um, he makes this transition. He goes from condemnation back and forth of these two groups of people to the, the fact that you are declared not guilty. That's the, that's the other than the introduction, that's the first time he, he's gonna run through two full chapters of guilty, 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 guilty. And then he's gonna say, you're not guilty. He says, God is called both just and justifier. Okay? He's gonna use this terminologies like transgression, propitiation, justified, credited, reconciled throughout the end of chapter three. He's gonna run that up in through chapter four, giving us a, an entire chapter and a half of the grace of God, that he is just and justifier. And then in chapter five, Paul begins to talk about the benefits and the scope of this justification. Listen to this. For if, I, if while we were enemies, that is condemned, if while we were condemned, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by this life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now received reconciliation. So he's gonna talk about all the benefits um, throughout chapter five, okay? Uh, chapter six and into chapter eight, he makes a second court argument because some would say that if we're off scot-free because of what Jesus did for us, then why not keep sinning? And so he, he makes a side argument and builds this defense statement against that charge that complete justification leads to sin's dominance in the life of the believer. He, he makes a legal defense argument um, that just because we're acquitted and we're let off doesn't mean we should enter some double jeopardy type situation where ah, can't be charged again. Chapter eight ends with a future perspective on the present sufferings that are going on among the uh, believers in Rome because that persecution, these people coming back in, there was, even though uh, Nero had allowed them back in, there was still a lot of persecution that was going on. And he wanted to, to switch their focus from present suffering to the future glory that we have in Jesus. Chapter nine discusses Israel's rejection 
of Jesus as Messiah. And then Paul again makes a legal case um, that, that God's justness of executing righteousness against the remnant of Israel outside of Jesus. And in doing so, he uses some really amazing picture language. He talks about this in the terms of the mercy seat, okay? Um, The mercy seat uh, has two meanings. To both of these groups of people that he's writing to, one to the Jew, because you guys recognize that the mercy seat is another name for the Ark of the Covenant, right? So the Israel saw God's presence and his revelation, his saving grace. They saw that through having access to the mercy seat. By this time in Israel's history, they had lost that mercy seat. And Paul's here saying there is a new mercy seat in the new covenant. And then to the Gentiles, to all these Romans that had become believers, they knew the mercy seat also because when the judge walked in to rule, there would be a platform where the judge was higher than everyone else, kind of like a stage. He would, the, the, ba- the bailiff basically would walk in with a mercy seat. It's just a folding chair. You know, those like little ones that fold like this and it's got cloth in the middle, Not, nothing fancy, but that was known as the mercy seat. They would bring that in. It would be folded out. The judge would walk in and sit. Whoever sat on the mercy seat had the right to make judgment on whatever basis he chose. He could do that on the law. He could do it on your your rightness in that situation, if that allowed, or he could do it because he'd been paid off or because of who you knew. But the Jews and the Gentiles both knew what a mercy seat was and who ever held the mercy seat had the right to make the decision. Uh. That runs us up into chapter 11, where we read from this morning. So this is kind of the high point, the culmination of the letter. The first 11 chapters have talked about, you are condemned, you are reconciled. First 11 chapters are about that. Um, I, would, I would caution us though, in the, in the fact that you would think that the first 11 chapters are about this, therefore it is what the book is about. But Paul makes a very interesting transition in this, uh, in this passage. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Counselor, that's some court terminology that we know. Uh, Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever, amen. And then he transitions into this therefore. We're gonna come right back to that in just a moment. But but that that court term counselor um, that's forwarded to today, uh, you realize that God here is called an inscrutable judge just now. That's what this is saying. His wisdom and knowledge are above all other judges. Um, Who's given him a gift? Who's bribed him? Who can bribe God, right? So he's, he's driving home the point that God has set the law. He is set by how he will judge man. And he can do it because he's God. He can't be bought off. This is the wisdom of God. 
the righteousness of God imputed to those that follow Jesus. So he, he's summarizing all of this. Who, who can question him? And then he's gonna spend the next two chapters on how we are to live out that reconciliation. The emphasis of the first 11 chapters, when we think about it, like he's writing to the church, right? We, we got that, to the church at Rome, to the believers at Rome. Paul has spent 11 chapters telling them something they already knew, right? They already, they already know they're Jews. They already know they're Gentiles. They've already come to believe in Jesus. That's not his main point. He's now going to tell them how they are to live in that righteousness. And this is going to be his main point. This is the, the, the thesis. He, he's, he's spent 11 chapters setting this up that, um, that you need to know what your actions should be as a result of the righteousness that's been bestowed on you. So the next two chapters speak specifically about how to live out that reconciliation with reconciliation to one another as Jew and Gentile. He's gonna spend time talking about how to live one another, how to make that look as we live in relationship to the government and to our neighbors and to each other within the church. I'm gonna point out really quickly, I'm almost out of time. Uh, point out really quickly uh, throughout the rest of the reading from this morning, some of the theme and uh, pronouns that I mentioned earlier, just so that you kind of get an idea of what you should be looking for as you read through Romans this year, as you hear it preached. It says, oh, the, uh, I just went through the first three. I'll, I'll skip down. Um, 12, I appeal to you, therefore, Okay, this is setting up. Therefore, all this stuff I've said in the first 11 chapters, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies. In, in like Oklahoma English, that's you all. It's plural. It's not a singular, singular uh, pronoun. It's present your bodies, Jew and Gentile, as a living sacrifice, singular holy and acceptable to God. This is our reconciled state, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, you all. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself. So everyone, himself, that, that one is singular. It sounds Sounds plural, but it's actually singular. Uh, more highly than you ought to think. Individual, do not think more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of the faith that has, God has assigned. For as one body, we have many members, plural. The members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body. Individually, members one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Listen to the way that those gifts are described. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, 
the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So I preached a message two weeks ago that talked about us being saved individually. God calls us individually, but not to an individualistic faith, but into a faith of community. This is what Paul is saying here. He has saved you individually. He has given you gifts individually, but they're not your own. They are given to you so that you may come together corporately, that you may be reconciled no matter what your background, your race, your ethnicity, your color, your socioeconomic background. You can all be reconciled to one another by the exercising of your gifts. I got 10 seconds left and I got two more pages of notes. Um, If we go through the New Testament and we look at the commands that are given the church, like what Paul's about to hit us with in chapters 12 and 13, all these one another's. um, If you look through all the commands that are given in the New Testament, things that we should do as believers, one another statements would by far dominate your pages. Um, Paul's gonna spend the rest of this letter talking about how to live in community, how to put what you were before Jesus Christ behind you so that you can live together as one community. He does that because living in the community of the local church is necessary, not optional, for who we are in Jesus Christ. If you wanna grow in the grace, in the righteousness of God that's bestowed on you, that was declared upon you by the judge, you've gotta do that in community because he calls you as an individual from your individual sin into the church. We're gonna see that over and over again. Our Lord, all of you, Turn from this singular stuff to this corporate stuff. That's why my family came to Crosstown over 11 years ago. We recognized a need for the corporate stuff. And we saw a group of people that were trying to make an emphasis on that. And as I've heard your stories, many of you, that's why you came to Crosstown. You wanted what we were trying to foster and see happen in missional families. Um, But I'll tell you in 11 years, that's not been very easy. Um, We're sinful people. Um, Even this week, Crystal and I sat down and had this conversation like, why are we doing this? Why are we living in community? because sometimes it really sucks. Sometimes it feels like you're the only one giving in community. You're the only one trying to not be an individual, trying to be the all. God's brought us into like a really gracious time um, with people in our missional family. So that's not, not really the the case completely, but then we also got these people that it's like pulling their teeth 
to get them to come along when what we know is good for their soul because Romans says it is. That part of it's really, really hard. Paul knew that it was difficult. God speaking through Paul knew it was difficult. That's why he, he leads this transition from your reconciliation into the body of Christ with, with this prayer. He, he did it back in chapter one when he first mentioned it. By, by praying, by the mercies of God. And he repeats it again in chapter 15, verse 13, when he says, may it abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Like God knows that what he's calling us to is not easy. He knows that it's hard. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit. That's why he listed these gifts right here, right at the beginning of jumping into all of these things that he's gonna ask us to do to one another, with one another, for one another. He leads it with a reminder that, do you remember that when you were, when you were reconciled, when you were declared righteous by God, that you were given a gift by the Holy Spirit? Like each one of you were given different gifts so that when they come together and they're manifested together, that you can live out what I'm telling you you're supposed to do so that you can look more like me. Church, um, as an elder, I'm gonna just tell you right now, like we understand it's hard, but you've been gifted in such a way that our church needs you. As a member of our church, if you remember back to that interview, we told you, if you become a member here, it's because we need you and because you need us. We're gonna commit to you. We're gonna ask that you commit to us so that we can live out what the Bible tells us to do. And when that happens, like when credible gospel community happens, it's because the exercising of these gifts. And so as we study through Romans, and we start thinking about the fact that you have been, you've been saved by the righteousness of God, think about what that should be meaning to you right now in the life of the church. Because it's not just about you. It's about how you can serve the body so that the kingdom can be advanced. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that this series of us studying through Romans, that we will get a clear picture of our standing with you. For some of us, it's the fact that we need to come to grips with the fact that we don't have a right standing with you. We are trying to earn our way through the law, not as Jews by birthright, but we're still trying to earn something with you.
some of us in our community, we've got a lot of kids here. Some, some of our kids are going to think that, that just because they have a connection to their parents and what they believe, that, that they have a standing before you. There might be some that have slipped through and just said something that they've heard repeated over and over again, but their heart is far from you. God, I pray that as we preach through Romans, that we will, that we will find our right standing before you, whether that is in condemnation or if that is in pure reconciliation only through the work of Jesus, only by knowing him God, please do not let the gospel start. Stop there. God, let us get a grip on who you have called us to be in your kingdom. God, you have called us to be the church and it hurts sometimes. Gentile looking down on Jew, Jew looking down on Gentile, us not doing one another's, not seeking reconciliation, not giving reconciliation. God, let us turn from our individualistic view of ourself. Let us turn into the kingdom. Let us turn into the church so that as we live out community, God, the world will see us as reconciled people. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.